Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, I am Annie McManus. Welcome to Changes. So... The incredible, iconic Glastonbury Festival is approaching fast. It's been three years since the festival happened um, and I'm going to be down there. And I thought to get ready for the festival, to get excited for the festival, it would be nice to do a couple of episodes of changes around people uh, involved in the festival, which is why next week we are going to be bringing you a unforgettable conversation with Emily Evis, the lady behind uh, so much of the festival. And this week we wanted to speak to an artist who is going to be playing at Glastonbury. So I am thrilled to bring you this episode featuring the powerhouse that is Irish singer Roisin Murphy. Now, as a young girl growing up in Dublin, Roisin Murphy symbolised this wild, free existence, unfettered from the shame that seemed to be omnipresent in an Irish childhood and dominated by creativity, art and most of all vigorous fun. She was so 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 aspirational to me. I didn't know if I was ever brave enough to live like she seemed to live but I knew that I wanted to try. She was really important to me because no one existed like her in Ireland. I didn't know anyone that had left the country and succeeded in this world of kind of underground electronic music and who was so so good at it. Roisin was born in Arklow in Ireland before moving with her family when she was 12 years old to Manchester where life got really turned upside down as you will hear about in this episode. It was in Manchester and later Sheffield that she immersed herself in music eventually becoming the front woman of a band called Maloco after she met the producer Mark Bryden and famously chatted him up saying do you like my tight sweater? That line became the title of the debut album from Maloco an album that to me as a teenager in Ireland I clung on to not just for the music Music, but also because it symbolised something bigger, a place beyond Dublin, a kind of door to a bigger world as such. Since her time in Maloko, Roisin has released five solo albums. She's been nominated for the Mercury Music Prize, the Brit Awards, the Ivan Novello Awards. She's an absolute icon in the world of fashion as well. Her on-stage outfits being as talked about as the performances themselves. If you've never had the pleasure of seeing her on stage or hearing her, her voice is very sexy and very sultry and very suggestive and very powerful. Her lyrics are challenging and she can't stay still really on stage. She dances furiously kind of shaking every limb in these huge extravagant outfits that are kind of beyond clothes they're kind of theatre in themselves her career has had that very rare trajectory of becoming more popular as she grows older amassing more and more fans for being basically 
totally fearless and uniquely herself. She just doesn't give a fuck. And in this day and age, that is hard to find. Roisin Murphy. I was nervous to speak to her because I'm such a fan, but I really shouldn't have been. I chatted to her in her house in Ibiza. You can hear the birds singing along in the background. She just got back from tour, so I started by asking her how it was. I love that video that you brought up, the kind of best bits video of just the entire tour condensed into like 60 seconds of madness. It just looks so fun, the whole thing. You just look like you're having the absolute time of your life. I think it is very fun, isn't it? It's like being let Mm. loose like children, I suppose. Um, It's tough. It's really tough. And especially on me because uh, I'm dancing so much, I can't be stopped. I just, you yeah. know, I go out on the stage and I forget that I'm a woman of a certain age. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was 35 degree heat in, in Germany when we were there. So, yeah. And then we were like, we played in Hamburg and uh, DJ Coase came and he was like yeah. hassling my assistant all night. But this is not possible. She must. Uh, she there's no oxygen on the stage. She's going. Has she got get a fan on the stage for? Her. She's going to collapse. <laughs> so, so kind. So, so that's sort of through the through his eyes anyway. Um, yeah. It looks like I'm about to die. Yeah. I mean, you do give so much in your performances. I it's commit. Not just singing. It's I, so much more than that. I commit. You know, when you go out on the stage. Yeah. As my dad yeah. used to say, you'd be dead long enough. Yeah. <laughs> this is about changes in your life and uh, one of the things you talked about when we asked you about your changes was your move to Manchester mm. as a family so would you mind Roisin giving us a little like just like painting a picture of life pre-Manchester like when you were a kid in Ireland growing up what were your memories of that time in Arklow? Um, I had a, a great childhood. I mean, it was expansive and uh, it was very artistic and creative and I was very free to come and go as I wanted in, the, in that old-fashioned way in Ireland, yeah. you know. You could throw the bag in after school and off you go. I mean, my mother's had even more freedom in that they grew up in town. They had a business in the main street, but at the back of the business, they grew up above the business, you know, in the same building. There was steps down to the river and they had uh, a rowing boat when they were children and they were taught to swim very early and taught all about the water and the boat and everything. And off they went. They just imagine that like our kids now. Go on now, five and six and seven years old. Off you pop down the river, you know, it's just like... Yeah, no life jackets back in then. No, just, but very well drilled, like, um, but still amazing. Off all day, they'd bring a picnic and they'd have a gramophone. They had a little wind-up, our big wind-up gramophone thing that they had on there. So they'd float up and down the river playing music and very beautiful. Wow, so your mum was brought up in Arklow too? My mother's old Arklow, as they say. Right, (laughs) right. Yeah. Wow. And um, anyway, so in Ireland, I had a lot of freedom um, and I was surrounded by music and it just went in by osmosis. Um, I wasn't um, in any way sort of made to go to after school clubs or (laughs) I didn't do any sort of preparing for 
anything <laughs> as a child, yeah. really. And I, I, I really value that. Yeah. What were you like in school? I wasn't great in school. Um, I'm dyslexic. And uh, so that wasn't really spotted, I think. I think there was a genuine sympathy for me and that there was a few teachers who knew that I was intelligent. Mm. But um, I was a bit of a troublemaker and I had trouble between my peers as well, between myself and my peers uh, in Ireland toward the end of it, sort of from the age of about 10, 11, 12. You know, there was a bit of trouble brewing, I think, in Arklow for me. And it was like a miracle to be taken to Manchester. So give me the context of that decision. Why did you go? Uh, well, I mean, Ireland at that time, everybody was in trouble financially. Absolutely everybody. Mm. Mm. It was a massive recession hit, kind of out of nowhere. And everybody thought they were doing so well in the 70s. In my early childhood... Um, Arklow was very prosperous. Uh, it was yeah. one of the most highest employment figures in the in the country. Uh, we had lots of factories and different businesses up with the China down as well. We had the Narataki yeah. and all sorts of stuff going on. And it was still a sort of vibrant holiday destination, the caravan park, huge, mm. and so on. And then something hit, and I'm not really clear what happened, but uh, it was terrible, and everybody was in trouble, and we were n- not the least of it. And my dad had always been um, a chancer in a sense of, you know, he took chances and he thought big, and he'd had lots of success, lots of success in his life, and then all sorts of uh, troubles as well, you know, it was really up and down. And so uh, we we moved to Manchester on that basis, basically. Um, and, of course, we had family connections there. My father's sisters yeah. were there. Um, his brother was there. His mother was from there. Um, and lots of the Murphys, cousins and that, have connections there. Loads of them there. So mm-hmm. that was the natural place to go. And... Um, and as I said, for me, you know, just personally, um, it was a blessing. There was a bit of trouble brewing. And how do you mean when you say that? Well, there was fights almost every day in school. You were in fights with All other the people time. in school? All the time. And why? What was going on there? Oh. They, were, they were giving you jip? They were jealous. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course. I was like, Take aye, aye you're right. And they were like, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not all right. <laughs> no, I mean, obviously, uh, I had a very big gob. And um, mm. I mean, it's a lifetime getting control of big gob, I suppose, isn't it? And do you reckon your parents, did they see that or were you keeping that to yourself? And, you know, it's not as big a deal then, like as it would be now. Yeah. And I wouldn't yeah. have had language like my children have. Mm. that perhaps even I think sometimes my children are being dramatic, you know, because that's not my, that's not been my experience. It's not your experience, of course. Um, So, but you know, it's my nana who was uh, an incredible matriarch and was running all these businesses because her husband had died and um, was very loving to me in a certain way of like, being very tough on me and then 
if I achieved something, you know, it was the biggest deal of all. She made a massive deal out of it. So I used to like win every year at the saying the poems in the festival in Ireland, in Arklow. We had this sort of arts festival and all the kids would go in for these saying a poem and I'd be silly old baboon by Spike Milligan and I'd get up and I'd do all the like, you know, and I'd win it and she'd be always and then you've got to be tops, you know. I'd say, ah, no, no, I'm being picked on, you know, and she'd go. Yeah. I'd say you deserved it. <laughs> Such an Irish mammy thing to say that. Thing. So... So you never really felt like you were due sympathy. Sometimes you don't really think I did. you're I mean, allowed to feel sorry for yourself. I did. And I think that um, it's sort of almost a fault line in me that I'm, I need things to be justified. Mm. I need justice. Mm. So you are say, 12 years old at this point yeah. when you go to Manchester. Yeah. So for you, it's a chance to start all over again. All right? over again. And I did make some of the same mistakes again. And I went in right. and I was like with the bad girls and, you know, and and of course that all sort of exploded and imploded within about sort of six, seven months. Um, and I'd gotten into trouble and they turned on me and it was all oh, <laughs> childhood stuff. And then um, I met all these weirdos. And uh, that was the end of that. And I, I just sort of moved on, getting really into music and um, having loads of fun and going to the like, you know, alternative pub that used to actually let us in, even though we were like 15, in Stockport mm. with all the punks and the goths and the alternatives and the Smiths fans and the. Dogs on the string and uh, the ones that lived in the flats and the squatters mm. and the, uh, all the weirdos, basically. So that was like 14, 15, and started doing that. That must have been such an enlightening experience coming out of Arklow, which is a small Irish town, going to Manchester and seeing all this madness. It was still small. It still felt right. very like, um, certainly felt like a community within that world. And not, mm. a ba- not a big one, you know, and you kind of got to know everybody immediately in all these different mm. worlds and with all these different music kind of tribes, just there was an opportunity in that moment to infiltrate it as a group, as a, as a thing that was mixing, you know, mm. um, that maybe wasn't even before, maybe it was more segregated before my time. Mm. But there was like... Yeah, everybody was just together. My first band was called Anne Turquoise Car Crash. The the lads were really into the Mary Chain and they all looked like mm. they were in the Jesus and Mary Chain. And then we promoted the gig really well, actually. Far too many people turned up. For, it, was, it was packed, right? And um, I think it was the name was catchy and also, you know, me and Duncan going up and down on the bus, like if we saw a weirdo, it would be given the flyers and that, you know, and they all turned up and um, we had a, a warm up band who were like a really serious band and they were proper and they played keyboards and they had all sorts of gear and and then we came on after them and we had done absolutely no rehearsal. When we went to rehearsal, we just used to turn the lights out and like make white noise and pink noise and... <laughs> and- what was your role in the band? Were you singing? Screaming. You up front? Screaming. Also pretend, <laughs> pretending that I'd been in a car crash. 
and then an ambulance comes and there's more there's more noise and then there's, there's fight there was fighting and then there was like people on the stage obviously the stage got invaded and then people got through off the stage and I hid behind the speaker stacks for the most of the gig. I was sure that I might get hurt, but I, I, I let loose, you know. <laughs> so that was, but it was actually really a rather success, but there was something in us that didn't want to repeat, couldn't repeat. So these weirdos that you like, you say that you, you kind of found and got in with, what was it about them? that made you feel like they were your people? I just, you know, totally unjudged. You know, also to be taught things. I think I've, yeah. outside of school, I've, I've tried to find teachers in my life. And I've, mm. been, I've been pretty successful at that. Yeah. And what was school like then in Manchester? Uh, not very good. Yeah. No. Did your Irishness feel like exaggerated as it does if you'd leave Ireland and go somewhere else? Were you more conscious of that? Well, I did at one point get up and do like a speech to the school. We had a speech competition. So I did a, a prejudice. Uh, so you did a speech I about, spoke about prejudice? P- prejudice, yeah. Right. Against Irish people? Well, feeling it. Um, yeah. Because you, right. they used to say, oh, you're in the IRA. <laughs> Stuff right. like that. Stupid stuff, anyway. It didn't really yeah. bother. It didn't really bother me that much. The Paddy thing, mm. Paddy, mm. ah, Paddy. Yeah. So um, it didn't. It didn't really bother. Of course, I was being called Murphy as well as feeds into the. You know, <laughs> right? Of course, yeah. yeah. So you just you just have to. Yeah, it was it was fine. Actually, it wasn't too bad. That really. Yeah. It was more yeah. just. I didn't learn much, and I when I went in, it was very. Even though I was dyslexic, I was a genius. But within six months, I was as bad as everybody else. Right. Yeah. It's probably why you try to find teachers outside of it. Try and learn in your own way. Well, I've always been hungry to, to learn. And, and I yeah. think that goes to my parents. You'd have to give that to my parents in that I genuinely listened to them. You know, yeah. I genuinely liked what they liked and uh, absorbed what they wanted to show me, things like that. So, so what happened next then with your parents? So then, my parents broke up when I was fifteen, and uh, that wasn't very nice. That was another change. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was hard. So they decided to go home then, right? Well, my dad went off about his business and he was still in the Manchester area. But my ma uh, went home and I didn't want to go home. So I decided to stay in Manchester when I was 15. Now, this is really something. So how did you negotiate that? I didn't really have to, you know. Things were so bad, like everybody was in shock and... um, You know, there wasn't an awful lot of money around either to do amazing things like, you know, there was just bare minimum of everything, uh, including Mm. patience and sanity. So uh, my sense then, I think, looking back, was I made the instinctive mathematical choice that it'd be better if I stayed Mm. Uh, for everyone. And 
I was very lucky. I had these amazing friends. And I think my mother always loved my friends, you know, from that point, those that in that time. And really was a strong objector to anybody like me. My father's aunt used to come around and say they were on heroin and stuff like this. And they weren't. They were just like they completely naive, really. A couple of pints, maybe. I think she always yeah. knew that this was a great thing, that I was with these interesting people. And she loved Duncan, who was my very bestest friend. And his mother took care of me for a little while, in the sense she took me in until I was able to get it together to get a flat. So when I was 16, I got the flat. And I was very lucky too in that the and uh, parents were familiar with the um, social care system yeah. in the UK. And so things were going ahead and applications were made. And I was given, I found a flat myself, very close to Duncan's house, very close to where I used to live. And it was great out flat. You know, it was like it was in a, a Victorian house and I had a shared hallway between the bedroom and the living area. I had yeah. a shared bathroom between the whole house uh, and I had an outside toilet at the back, which was disgusting. <laughs> but it was ace. It was an ace flat. Big high ceiling in the bedroom because it was all Victorian house mad wallpaper like black wallpaper with this super real oil painting roses floating in the black beautiful like victorian tiled hallway then into the back and there was like an, a circular orange sofa in my living area already wow. so i was like this is it this is the place and then um, i had my own little kitchen there at the back and the steps went down into this Gorgeous garden, because the old one who owned the two houses was mad with the gardening. Right. Beautiful, like, Victorian garden. Slight, you know, with maybe palm tree as well as, like, roses and oh, absolutely stunning. Massive thing as well. So I lived out in the garden in the summer. It was great. Mm. And, um, of course, my friends all wanted to come around to watch Twin Peaks and um, listen to music and stuff, so... It was great, and, and the mammies of my friends would bring things that I needed, and um, I stayed at another friend, girlfriend's house at the weekends a lot of the time. Lovely family, Pip, and uh, they were Jewish, and they used to stay at the weekend, of course, and do all the lovely dinner, and the family yeah. would come round, they'd mind me. And, uh, and I was free, totally free to start making myself. Were you excited to be free? Was there trepidation? Yeah. Like loved it, loved it. I mean, you're 16. You're like in the middle of every single like physiological change you could go through. Everything is changing, body wise, hormones, fucking raging, and then life as you know it, like the foundations of it, become tenuous. And then you're on your own. It's just like it must have been a mad time of really extreme upheaval and change. But you seem very. Like, you just had to own it. You know that thing, like, when th when life changes, it's brilliant. It's the most exciting time ever. Yeah. And all yeah. these, like, network connections come together. Mm. It's, oh, that was the point of all of it. Oh, it's for this moment of change, actually. That's what sort of made me, I guess, is that is that moment, is that decision. And testament to your mum for knowing you well yeah. enough to know that. Yeah, and knowing herself also, that yeah. she was not in the right position to 
make me happy with a move to Arklo, you know. Mm. Yeah, it might have felt like a step backwards for you. Oh, God, I, I, they were all into heavy metal. I, I couldn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> Okay, so you stay there and you find yourself and you're learning, you're learning, you're learning culture, you're throwing yourself out there. And then you meet Mark Bryden and then you start Maloko. Mm. But hang on, you met him in Sheffield though, right? Yeah, yeah. So why did you go to Sheffield? Well, in between, there was another teacher, you know, I met this fella, Pete, and he uh, right. was an architect student in Sheffield, but he was having his year off. Um, in Manchester, yeah. working in a, in a practice, and um, we fell in love. And the first time we were together, we went on a tour of Europe, architectural tour of Europe in my high end, my high end eye that my dad got me for my seventeenth birthday, which I never learned to drive. I still can't drive, but he drove us around Europe, and we were living on ten pound a day, and uh, going to see these amazing buildings all over. Uh, France, Italy, Spain, and then we went down as far as Greece and back up again. All six weeks run. It was wow. amazing. It was amazing. Yeah. So he went back to Sheffield to do his last couple of years and I moved with him and I moved in with him and that didn't work out um, because of my hormones. I think I was mad at the time. Well, no one teaches you about hormones. It feels incredibly unfair you're consumed by these feelings of rage and anger and ugh, and you don't know why. Yeah, I think I did take it out. I take out a lot on him as well that maybe I had sort of like not dealt with going through the yeah. Manchester phase because I was on my own and there was no one to do, you know, to kind of take it out on or be disappointed in or, or anything like that. So, um, so yeah, that, that didn't work out. But moving to Sheffield was fortuitous, you know, and... As soon as I'd moved to Sheffield, it was such a kind of small scene. I kind of became a fixture in the club, you know, in the going to the clubs and that, and parties and things. And one night I met him. Him. Then I met him. <laughs> in party. And, Stuff of uh, legend now, that. I. Yeah. And, um,. And I, I did actually go in the studio with him that night saying, do you like my tight sweater on the tune? That yeah. um, he already had sort of made a few tracks which weren't anything to do with anything else that he was doing because he was a um, you know, busy producer at the time anyway. He's a good bit older than me. This is Mark Bryden, my ex, in case yeah. people don't know, who was mm-hmm. in the loco with me. And he... he uh, he was uh, 13 years older than me. Oh, right. Yeah. So we, it was a bit frowned upon in the beginning. Mm. Yeah. But then when they start hearing the tunes. Yeah, they didn't mind so. They, they were like, oh, yeah, she's a, she's a keeper. <laughs> <laughs> so Maloko, kind of, you got a deal and, and, and that first album did really big things. How did being in Maloko, looking back at it now, how did that change you? I don't think it did change me. Right. I don't think that's the biggest, that's not a big change moment in a sense of, 
Definitely in the beginning, it was just a continuation of a lifestyle. It wasn't a serious, professional, ideal that we were going for, you know. It was really yeah. like a love affair with a, a crazy young girl and a brilliant, I mean brilliant, producer and player and writer and loads of experience. So... It, we just had really good fun. We didn't think he really wanted to be with me. So uh, we also got offered the deal accidentally, you know, we, in the sense of his manager took a few of these instrumental tracks, as I told you, that were lying around mm. and a couple of two or three ones where I was saying things or pretending to be somebody, you know, and he didn't tell us it and he took it to London. And played it wow. to people. And from that, we got, you know, a few months down the line, we were signed. Wow. So, so in the, in the beginning, it was all, all that. And you can hear it. The first record is uh, two people lying down in their own little self-made studio at that point in the top of Mark's house, giggling. Two people lying on the floor, giggling in this, like, blue room with purple carpet and silver walls and... You know, <laughs> an orange, you know, it was mad in that room. But then on the other hand, it is this person who had fun and could then take that and mix it in fun and had this in interior connection with this huge, mm. beautifully, purposely built studio that he'd been involved building. That could take it to a whole other level, you know, the like of just mm. lying around being idiots. Mm. Mm. And like... So you you had always just been you, right? And then suddenly you're in the music industry and you're being written about and labelled and talked about. You know, you just talked about yeah. yourself. You just mentioned yourself as a crazy person, right? I'm interested in like how Block other people viewed you. The top of the. <laughs> she said she was self-confessed crazy woman. <laughs> Listen, we fucking love crazy women. I'm interested in how other people labelled you. Well, definitely, I wasn't seen as a type of performer. And the performer that I am was so dissonant to anything that fitted into anything, I think. Yeah. To be fair, that it took a while for that to bed in. For me, for them, for you, for the band, for us, for the organisation, for the... So that's just that. But mm. um, press initially was extremely favourable to Maloko, you know. It was like, oh, this is too easy. <laughs> It's as easy is that as this. It? Is that all we it's have, all to, you do? have to do? Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. So I think, um, but doing press is, is not easy. No. And um, I was never taught to do ballet or to sing or to dance or to do press or to look at contracts or any any of these things. You know that you that just. Yeah. I'm not a taught one. You know. Well, that's why. That's why you're fucking Roisin Murphy. Because that, and this is that. This is what I'm interested in. It's because like, I went to see you play in Wheelands on that. I think it was on one of your first tours. It was one of my first gigs where I was allowed into town to, with my friend. You had a loudspeaker. There was a dog basket on stage. You curled up in the dog basket during the gig. You prowled around the stage. I had a bone and as I, well. I I remember <laughs> going to that and like coming home and being like. What the fuck? Like in the best possible way, like I didn't know you were allowed to be like that. I I I hadn't seen anyone be like that or act like that or be so unashamedly themselves. 
And it was just blew my mind. But I don't think you got that type of performance very often. Like, I was fucking naive anyway. But you must have been remarkable at the time, is what I'm trying to say, in the landscape of other people. And it was acknowledged that I was remarkable. Uh, So there's no complaints there. Uh, Mm. But uh, it it wasn't hard to sustain. It wasn't easy to sustain. And... Initially, the the gig that you saw, I think, would have been with the lads from Sheffield, where we just reached out with what was around us and put together a band real quick. And that disintegrated pretty quickly, even though it was really ace. It had nothing to do with the record at all. These lads were just like, it was like dub, punk, funk, sort of, sort of mad New York, gothy, funk. Yeah. You know, then we had like a label kind of going, we told you, we told you. Okay. You're supposed to, you know, do this right, you know, let's hire some um, real session players and that. And we did, and it was just not good, you know. It was okay, it had its moments, but it was a bit closer to the record, but not quite close enough, and Mm. it was a bit tame compared to where we'd been. For me, yeah. anyway. And then, so my exaggerated performance set to that didn't gel, I think. Right, got you. I think. Yeah. So there was, there was an awkward time there, you know, for, for me yeah. as a performer. And then, because put together um, a live thing when you're um, an electronic duo. It's different. Who were just yeah. seriously playing with the idea of having dolls as being Maloko, having these plastic mm. dolls I had that were about that size. And they were like, no, three different sizes. They had uh, raincoats on, different colours, called the Raincoat Sisters. Anyway, my dad gave me them for some reason. Even when I was an adult, he brought them over to Sheffield. <laughs> so then we were going to do that. But step by step by step by step, mistakes and positives and all that. And we were allowed to do that because actually, bad as they were, the label, they were good as well. And they stuck mm. by us and... Um, they let us do a second record and even a third record and, uh, well, I suppose a second record. Then, into our lives, stepped Eddie Stevens, mm. the greatest gentleman in the music business of all time. And um, he's my MD and now and then, in the sort of early days, going into the second album, I think. And he came in and he just pulled everything together. And he just yeah. made it fun. There became cohesion in the band, like. Yeah. And yeah. then we were just lucky. We were on the pig's back because there's not many that make electronic music that can... It's not easy to pull it together. Yeah. You're not already there. Yeah. Tell me about Going Solo, that first album, that Ruby Blue album, and finding your feet as a solo artist. Again, you know, that was pretty ballsy, you know, going with um, Matthew Herbert because it felt natural and mm. going ahead as I always do and I still do without asking anybody because you can in electronic music you know mm. it's like you can go to somebody's bedroom and start and um, I kind of did that with, with Matthew but it wasn't a bedroom it was a fabulous little place down in um, in Brixton in the dairy it was a really great place to work so I used to go down there every day office hours which was a first for me as well, because it hadn't been like that in Maloko. It kind of had been right. any hour of the day with us. 
and it was a, t- a total discovery, a uh, big step. Musically, song, so- songwriting, singing, sound, s- 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 all the S's. No, I mean, it was like mind-blowing and easy, in a sense, and quick, because yeah. it, yeah. uh, it was very focused. He reveled in my voice, and it, that was nice, because that wasn't really how it was developing in the local. Yeah. He really went back to basics with my voice, and, uh, and you hear me, like, so intimately on that record. Mm. Mm. In every way. So we'll get to your adult change now because you talked about becoming a mother. And when did you become a mum in the chronology of these kind of three solo albums that came out? After Overpowered, yeah. Right. After Overpowered. And how did that change things? God, I mean, it was like day and night. (laughs) Not pregnancy. This is the funny, this to me is the thing about children. You get pregnant, everybody talking to you about your pregnancy. It's like, for me, pregnancy was lovely. And so I don't get me wrong, if you have a nightmare during your pregnancy, I'm sure that's Mm. like, you can be like traumatized totally by it. But I had easy pregnancies. And the first one was fairly easy. And uh, Jesus, when you bring the baby home, though, from the hospital. (laughs) Oh, my God, this is more complicated than I thought. They also could die because of things that I do. And therefore, how am I supposed to go to sleep at all? (laughs) And anyway, they're never asleep. So um, so basically... That was a, a mind bender, but I brought brought the child home to Ar- Ireland, and uh, my mammy was oh, on right. hand. So now she didn't allow herself to become too much of a crutch, but she was there for me, you know, hundred percent. And and it was a special time, you know. I bet. Actually, yeah. well, I have a house over, a little house over there, and she would live by close by. And we spent a lot of time without my partner because he was in L.A. a lot, working for all sorts of insanely um, famous people and under a lot of pressure. And um, so that was grand. It was better to have him out of the way, (laughs) to be honest. Mm. And she taught me how to do it. And she expected me to be, you know, we're just very similar. We just see things really in a similar way. So it was great. Very intense. And it's a puzzle, you know. Children are a puzzle. You have to work it out for yourself. What what it is you want to... How you want to do it. Did it enhance you as an artist, do you think, becoming a mum? Did it change you as an artist in the way that you wanted to express yourself? It didn't change the way I want to express myself, but it definitely uh, focused me. Yeah. 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 Definitely focused me. It definitely made me more aware of how to say no and yes, how to commit, what commitment meant, being able to evaluate what energy would go into what projects. Right. Do you know, it sounds bad, but it's the full set, you know, you're like, oh yeah, I got the children as well. There's a bit of that as well, where it's mm. like, mm. That, that's horrible, I know. In a way, it's not nice mm. that, but it's true, you know, you're like... It gives you a bit of strength, like that's sorted. I've got, you know, I've done that. I've got that. I've always yeah, wanted that it. box. I've yeah. always, always wanted to be a mother. I was that 
little girl with the baby dolls and yeah you know I really love it I love kids I love kids now I'm a weird woman that stares at babies in airports <laughs> nearly cries at, you know when I look at you babies <laughs> are gorgeous I, I like I follow baby Instagrams and things like that I just yeah. <laughs> how old are your kids now um, my kids are nine and twelve and what do they make of Roisin Murphy? Not Mammy, Roisin Murphy. They really don't tell me much about it at all. Right. I don't know if yeah. that's... They just avoid talking about it. They tell me I wear too much makeup when I'm working. So it's, it's this email made up. Tiger go, what have you got on your face? <laughs> things like that. <laughs> no, no, Mama. It's weird. Yeah. <laughs> I don't rub it in their faces. Do you know that type of way? I don't. Yeah. Um, yeah. If they're interested, they'll, they'll be interested. If they're not, then I'll sell the catalogue when it's worth millions and millions and millions and millions of pounds. I'll go away and I won't give them the money. <laughs> and it'll serve them right. Um, do you ever doubt yourself? You don't strike me as someone who ever doubts themselves. Doubt is a strong word. Doubt. Hmm. I do question myself, of course I do. And I do take advice. Right. And I do absorb information from other people. So, Mm. uh, you know, the idea of a person who has no self-doubt maybe would paint a picture of somebody who couldn't do those things, but I think I can. uh, But I'm not not doubting of myself, no. Yeah. There's like a a kind of conviction that you have. Where did it come from? Like, you're so fucking yourself. And that's rare. That's rare. It, well, it's, it's my babby that I'm carrying, you know. It's this, it's, it's this thing. It's this, it's this... I'm minding this thing. What uh, thing? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what it is. What's the babby? <laughs> my metaphorical babby. Do you mean like the, a creative thing? Yeah. That you're protecting? Yeah, something. Uh, I'm an aesthete, you know. I, I, I. An aesthete, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Not beauty, no, because ugliness too. But uh, yeah, this thing. Do you think that you could have been the artist that you are now if you'd stayed in Ireland? I might have been. Not, not exactly as I as I am, but I might have yeah. been in a similar position. I could have been a visual artist if I'd stayed in Ireland. Who knows? Uh, I could have been a filmmaker, uh, fashion mm. designer, or an interior mm. designer. I really had a book when I was a child that was the Terence Conran house book my mother had. And it was my favourite thing in the whole world. I used to go in that sunken pits and, uh, mm. you know, space age houses. And I just used to go in to those interiors and wish, 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 you know, this thing, what do they call it now? A manif- Mani- manifest. Manifest. Let's manifest. Yeah. Look at me now. <laughs> Look at my sound system. <laughs> That's living all right. <laughs> when you go on stage, do you, you know, the way some people say they like take on a persona, are you you all the way through that process of going on stage and coming off? Or does something happen? Is there a shift? Yeah, I have not. I, I am an actress in the sense that I carry uh, stories in me and in my body, in my in my voice, in 
my costume in that sense. A great actor is a tr- is not a lying bastard. It's somebody who knows truth or values truth. Because if you can't, don't value truth and observe it, then you can't really project it, tell mm. a story truthfully. Mm. So um, I think I'm an exhibitionist, as I've always said. In that, I have to make an exhibition. And I do use myself in that, in that, in that exhibition. Mm. Mm. When did you realise you could sing? Um, I realised when I sang Don't Cry For Me Argentina for my family, after my mother had been away in America for a few weeks with her girlfriends, and she came back and I had learned it for her because I knew she loved. She had seen Evita in London with me dad and brought the record back. How old were you? Uh, I was nine, I think. I used to sing all the time. Like, I used to sing in the back of the car where I'd go, for, like, I'd do a medley of all the hits on the on the radio at the time but that was before that and they never put any pass on me none of them but I stood up in the room and I sang Don't Cry For Me Argentina well (gasps) she can sing come here and my nana oh my nana was so proud and and then every single time that they wanted me to sing it they'd say like oh your nana is not going to live much longer and (laughs) <laughs> so stuff, which wasn't true, she, you know. But uh, then they, they did pay me a few times to do it as well. No t- maybe I took a fiver here and a fiver there. <laughs> um, but I hated doing it, and um, and everybody could sing, you know. So it was yeah. Uh, only a few people couldn't sing a song. My mm. mother was one who couldn't sing a song at all. But she loved music. She was uh, always bringing in records into the house and she'd stay up at night when she was in the mood and play loads of records. And well, she was great at scratching them as well and breaking them up as well, unfortunately. Yeah. And so was your dad a good singer? Is that who you got it from? My dad was a Guinness voice, you know, he had a velvet, beautiful oh, yeah. voice. He could do all sorts of, he could take off people, you know, as well. Like, he'd do a fabulous um, Nat King Cole. Uh, He could do Lee Hazelwood. Mm. And he used to sing, These Boots Are Made For Walking To Me. He sang hundreds of songs. He never stopped singing, walk into a place singing. He loved it, he loved it. But there is such a joy to singing that... It's like a superpower or whatever. It's like another element. It's uh, even when you're not that perfect or anything. And certainly, my dad wasn't a trained singer. But there's such a joy to just controlling your voice in a musical way. It's such a you know. I'm so hashtag grateful <laughs> that I have it. Does it take? Is it meditative for you? Yeah, I think definitely live it is over a two-hour set trying to get into a flow state with it so that it manages it so so that it self-regulates. It's not, you're not always in it, but when you're in it, it's, it's the best thing in the world. What's your relationship to Ireland now? Do you go back there a lot? I know you're, you're in Ibiza right now, yeah? Well, there's been a bit of a disconnect since this lockdowns and all that. Mm. I've started to go back now a bit more. Does it mean a lot to you that your kids know about your Irishness? Yes, it really does, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
I mean, it, it, it's always meant a lot to us as a family. And my dad was always so happy to be Irish, he always told us. And, uh, yeah, it was, it's been a nice thing to be Irish, don't you think? Yeah, I really do. Hashtag grateful. Hashtag grateful. <laughs> Roisin, thank you so much. Thank you. You can catch Roisin at Glastonbury as well as other festivals throughout the summer. She also updates two playlists on Spotify every week, which we'll put links to in the show notes if you need some inspiration. Um, And just go and check her Instagram because it will enhance your soul. It will brighten your day. Just videos of her dancing about, basically. It makes me very, very happy. Uh, And next week, as I mentioned, continuing on the Glastonbury theme, I will be bringing you a fascinating and really insightful conversation with Emily Evis herself, the daughter of Michael Evis and the woman who is now with her husband, basically running Glastonbury Festival. Don't miss it. It's a real behind-the-scenes insight. And thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Follow and subscribe to Changes. Leave a rating where you can and uh, let me know what you think as always on my Insta. Changes is produced by Louise Mason through DIN Productions. My Insta is Annie McManus. Thank you so much and goodbye. <laughs>